A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to uh, Jill's and Jim's Joyride, the most popular podcast in the kingdom. is Britain's leading artist. Uh, he is named after a Scottish valley and a tin of soup. Ergo, he is Glenn Baxter. Yes. Welcome, yeah. Glenn, to the show. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. I follow him on Instagram as well. You can yeah. see a lot of his marvellous artworks on Instagram. A bit like uh -huh. you. You have your artworks on Instagram. I do, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the way forward, yeah. Yes. So here we are. How did you get here? Uh... By car, yeah, I drove from our house, yeah. What is it, a fast car? It depends who's, who's behind the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> it can be fast, or it can be incredibly slow, if I want to annoy people. Are you a, a keen motorist? Well, I like driving in the summer in, in France and Italy and, uh, and Greece, which is what, our, our trip is usually that, in the summer. But uh, last year we, we didn't go, obviously, because of the, uh, the COVID. Yeah. But it's the only place where you can actually, in France, you can actually drive on a road and see nothing in front and nothing behind. Yeah. Whether, yeah. whether, whether that's my driving or yes. not, I don't know. But uh, the, the blindfold, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so do you drive all the way from London, your home in London, through France and Italy? Yeah. Well, the, you, you can actually cheat because you get on the ferry in Ancona. So you, you're only going down like half of Italy, really. And there's a 24-hour ferry from Ancona to um, the Greek mainland which is what we do. You spend the night on the boat, you get a cabin and everything. It's great. Have you ever broken down abroad? We had a funny thing once we were coming back. We got all the way back from Greece to Calais. And as we were driving up towards the port, the, the car started doing this sort of kangaroo thing. And uh, we sort of pulled over and uh, the, the guys came out from this garage and uh, ooh, look at this and ooh, and terrible. And, you know you know how it is, you know. Ooh, I've yeah. seen one of these for many, many. Ooh, yeah, yeah. If only it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then they towed us into this garage and there was the spark plugs, which the French for spark plug is bougie, which is, is a candle. Oh, nice. Bougie. Bougie, yeah, bougie. yeah. And I've learned something there. There you are. Write it down. Bougie woogie. Bougie, bougie woogie, yeah, yeah. But some people say, you know, what's the best thing to carry in, a, in the event of a breakdown? And all the clever clogs say, oh, mobile phone. But I think, and you're both artists, visual artists, but I'm not. But I'm an amateur sketchist. And I think a sketchbook is quite a nice thing to have. So when you're sitting on the side of the road... Instead of thinking, well, it's what a, this is all a bit annoying, you can do some nice sort of, um, sort of landscape sketch of your car broken down in, in, on the hard shoulder. Yeah. In your drawings, I mean, there's a lot of quite unusual transport uh, takes place. What other sort of transport do, are you drawn to? When I was an art student, I was very impressed with um, the films of Méliès, you know, those uh, rocket, rocket to the Moon. 
So anything that's got sort of steel plating, I'm, I'm rather rather drawn to that. Mm. And, uh, and my dad was actually a welder at the local factory. And um, I remember he, he didn't really ha have much interest in art, but when he came down to see us some years ago, there was a, I took him to the War Museum and he was looking at these, these paintings by Stanley Spencer of these huge metal cylinders. And he said to me, he said, bah, I said, that's a good painting. <laughs> I said, why is that? He said, it's got every rivet in place. <laughs> and Which is a good way. It's a good yardstick for appreciating a work of art. If the rivets are in place, this is a work of art. That's of right. There's some great, <laughs> if you're looking for pictures of boilers, there's some really good ones at Chatham Dockyard's Art Gallery. In there, they've got pictures of boilers and dazzle ships, which I really like. Oh, and they're good, uh, yeah. Dazzle ships are great. Do you like them? Thinking about it, I do like an industrial view. And in fact... Just seeing an industrial view is quite a treat for me. I quite like that. I mean, are you keen on an industrial views? Yeah, mostly, yeah. I think um, anything to escape the drudgery of every, everyday life is always good. <laughs> the, the, are you, um, uh, Glenn, in your pictures, which have a lot of extraordinary subjects in them, is there things you find challenging to draw ever? Eyebrows. Oh. <laughs> it's always a tricky one on eyebrow. Mm. You have to get it just in the right place. Well, cause it could otherwise, say, otherwise it becomes a moustache yes yeah. <laughs> or a frown can be a sort of a smile it could indeed yeah, yeah depending yeah. on I'd never thought that's a challenge do you know those um, drawings that you used to get and you turn them upside down yeah. so it would be a bald man and then you turn around and his, his beard became his hair I actually saw a fella who looked like that the other day and I didn't turn him upside down <laughs> you should have done but he, I was thinking you are the actual living version of one of those drawings of people that you turn upside down. And is there an Italian painter, is he even called Gandolfini or something like that? And he draws fruit yeah. and it looks like people, but then you turn it upside down and it looks like people as well. Archimboldo. Archimboldo, that's it. 15th century Italian, yeah. Yes. Either way up he looks like sort of um, fruit. I wonder if you could do it with anything else. Mm. I'll have to try that out. Have you ever tried doing that? Being upside down. <laughs> Drawing fruit upside down. <laughs> No, I haven't got to that desperate stage yet, but uh, who There's knows? There's a lot of cowboys in your work, isn't There's there? There's a lot of cowboys, yeah. yeah. Well, that's based on my, my childhood in, in Leeds, when it was pretty dangerous to go out, you know. What, because of the cowboys? There were too many cowboys out there, yeah, yeah. Where did you first see a cowboy? Um, I first saw... Well, we used to go to the cinema like three times a week because these used to change the films over a, a lot. And every film that you saw, the main feature was always in a Hollywood film in colour. And the B-movie was always cowboys in, in black and white. And uh, so I, we were completely immersed in cowboys um, growing up. And um, I didn't see a real cowboy until I went to America. And um, we, we, we hired a car in uh, Arizona and we drove out to this place called Canyon de Chez, which is kind of an amazing valley with little um, mud um, dwellings that the uh, Native Americans had, had built there. And uh, it was an incredible sort of Ennio Morricone sort of type day with the wind was, you know, and there was a howling. And uh, my wife and I were standing there thinking, shall we go down there and look at these, this thing? Because it's quite a long way down. And suddenly this figure emerged out of the dust storm and it was a, a First Nation Native American oh. with a hat on and, and a feather and everything. And, you know, j j I thought, this is a kind of a childhood dream come mm. true. Mm. So he came over and said to us, uh, hello, and... Um, he said, I can take you down there if you if you like. I said, actually, it's a bit far. Uh, but uh, sorry, I said, uh, m my name's Glenn. What is your name? Thinking, this is where 
where I'm going to hear this incredible poetic, you know, Navajo yes. name. He held up his hand and said, my name is Clarence. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, why does it always happen to me? You know, that dreams are just shattered <laughs> right there, you know. What a great name, Clarence. Clarence, yeah. So did you oh, follow I, Clarence down? Did you did you go down with Clarence? No, it was it was such a long way down, and I thought I can never get over the shock of you know meeting Clarence. No, that's right. Did he have a fabulous surname though? F- Frogman Henry, maybe. No. maybe. <laughs> I was in Arizona once, and uh, driving through there, and there was nothing there at all. And then in the distance, I saw a giant Fred Flintstone about hundred foot high, and uh, it was at a garage. And that's all there was anywhere near. So this huge, great big Fred Flintstone. And outside, they had trestle tables full of great big lumps of plastic, like yellow transparent plastic. And there was a sign on it saying, jewels dug up from the desert. You can go in and buy them. But they were, they were trying to make out it was amber or gold or something. But I thought you were going to say it was great big sort of pretend Flintstone stakes. Well, it could have been. I mean, there's, I did. I tell you what, I did in there as well. I bought a packet of biscuits and got them back in the car and opened them up, and they were about fifteen years out of date. Nice. Well, that's that's Flintstoneish. Returning to your trip, what year did you go? Was this trip that you went out to the sort of desert with a car and everything? Oh, uh, it would be like twenty-seven years ago, I think. Yeah. I mean, that part of America, um, I've seen a lot of America, but I haven't really seen that part, the desert. Yeah, it actually, it was my wife's birthday present for me. Uh, she, she, she got us a holiday in this, in this dude ranch in, uh, just outside of Tucson, Arizona. And uh, so we went down to all those fantastic cactus places and uh, we drove up to the Grand Canyon. No Americans go there. In fact, the great thing about the Grand Canyon is when you get there, there's hundreds of Americans in their cars and none of them are talking their jaws are on the floor so it's absolute silence which is incredible because usually they're all you know being noisy and, and brash so it's absolutely a very quiet moment there so did, I, I enjoyed did, that did you talk loudly at that point of course i did yeah i said <laughs> what's wrong with you yeah. did you go to the stereotypes if you don't mind we did see a very funny thing on the way to the um monument valley when we arrived at Monument Valley, we stayed in that in the hotel where, um, where John Wayne had shot the searchers, you know. And uh, he said, if you go out very early in the morning, you can go down Monument Valley. Monument Valley. I want to come name. to Monument Valley. No, it's the wrong place. Yes. <laughs> so they said, uh, before the tourists arrived. So we, um, we got in the car, we drove down there. It was all kind of dusty and great. And there was nobody there. Um, we saw this uh, Native American sitting in his, his Jeep reading the funny papers. And uh, I thought, well, that's good, you know, and uh, he's enjoying himself. As we went past him, his walkie-talkie went off and he leapt out of his Jeep and he put on a bandana and he got, a, he got onto this, this uh, pinto pony and he rode it up to this crest. At the exact same time, the first Japanese tour bus came round the corner. Oh, perfect timing. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> so we'd seen that backstage of, of yes. all this, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's what people overlook sometimes, all of the effort that local people get put into putting on a great uh, show. I went to Rome uh, when my children were smaller, with some, and they had some friends with us, you know, and we all went there as a gang of children. And around the Colosseum, you could have your photograph taken with a centurion. 
Uh, and so there's a bloke in full centurion's get up standing and waiting and you, and you sort of go but you had to give him 10 euros or whatever and you, you have your picture taken with him so the children all wanted their picture taken with it and this particular one i mean to be honest i think if he'd have actually been in the centurion they would have retired him sometime earlier because he was getting on a bit to be a centurion and he didn't really have what i describe as or what i imagined as the legs of a centurion they didn't look like the legs of that had sort of kind of created an empire across the europe you know but not sort of legs and he had these weedy little legs and then the children said well let's have our photo we're going on let's have a photograph and then one of them said hang on a minute he's smoking a cigarette the centurions didn't smoke a cigarette and he told one of them to shut up and push but and then they pushed it and then it turned into this huge sort of argument and it was like and he was, like, he was shouting at them and chasing them and, and he had the fag hanging out of his mouth and his, his and centurion's his hat legs. came off and his weedy legs I thought oh dear this is just not you know let's go are you sure it wasn't now. Charles Hawtrey it was very he looked like that's a very good image that's exactly what he looked like curiously <laughs> enough but there was a bit of backstage I remember trying to say to him I'm in showbiz too I understand don't worry but I couldn't make that clear <laughs> You know, we're talking about journeys and some people it's psychological journeys or emotional journeys but it sounds like you've gone quite long journeys and it sounds like the car is your method of of choice really i mean you you know especially if you're going across europe you must have come across some other you must have had great adventures doing that yeah I, the nice thing about going to greece in the car is that you kind of come across it very very slowly you go through to france and you see the various changes in the landscape and um one time I did a I did a mural in this, this really weird Swiss hotel called the Hotel Furka, which is way above How are you spelling the, that? F <laughs> F U R K A. Yes. Furka. Furka Blick Hotel. And it's uh, it's good. it's by the Furka Pass, strangely. Yes. And it's where the Rhone Glacier begins its journey down towards the sea. And there's this weird Victorian hotel that this crazy Swiss guy called Mark had uh, developed it and um, had artists to come and do sculptures and, and artworks within this this building so we used to stay there on the way to Greece and we arrived there and the next morning we got, we got went to the car it was under like about a foot of snow so I thought it'd be great to take this to Greece you know it, you know take the snow to Greece yeah it's exactly a yeah yeah I've probably never seen snow but it didn't work because um as soon as you get down, it started to melt. So, oh, that's the thing with snow. And what was the mural that you you painted on the wall there? It's quite a thing when you have a mural done. That's the beauty of uh, being a mural painter. Mm. You lumber someone with your artwork for the rest of their life. <laughs> <laughs> have you done a lot of murals? I've done a, a hotel in Nice. I've done a, an Egyptian room there. I think I did the ceiling like little little stars. And when you when you open the door to the bathroom. It plays this incredible uh, King of Kings music, so oh. you're entering the uh, the vaults. Oh, how lovely! It, yeah. It's there still. It's still there, yeah. Um, yeah. What was the, what was the one in the uh, in the Furka Hotel? That was a cowboy looking at um, looking at a starfish on a wall. What um, was the what was the reason? Or oh, wasn't there? Well, the reason was that I thought, well, what's an unlikely event for this to be in this this uh, Victorian hotel, and a cowboy looking at a starfish, which is a metaphor for the sheriff's badge obviously of course uh, yeah, yeah yeah got that immediately and so i did that there and um various other people ian hamilton finley did something out outside in the um in the landscape hmm. but it's now um it's now not there anymore i mean it, it is there but it's not in an art hotel as it was a shame but have you done any murals jim uh i did one in deptford 
Oh, did you? Yeah, and I can't remember what... I'm going to just erase all that because I can't remember what it was I did. I did it in a school and I have no idea what it was that I did. I was teaching some little kids painting and uh, we did a big mural and I can't remember what it was. Probably some scenes from Deptford. Hmm, how lovely. So um, how about uh, shipping? Do you have a way you stand on shipping and railways? It's a bad combination, isn't it, really? Unless you have an underwater underwater railway. That would be, now you're talking. That's a possibility, yeah. yeah. No. Now we're in, into the realms of Jules Verne and George Melies now, aren't we? Exactly, yeah. Underwater trains. Oh, is, this is a bit sad, this. But I'm going to tell you anyway. My, um, my granddad, well, he was in the First World War and uh, he went over to France. And what they did was they got to Folkestone and he got off the train and got on a boat and went off to fight in France. And there was no boats coming back that way because they brought them all back, the dead bodies, into Dover. Oh. So you didn't see them coming back in. Oh. But he was there, and it's quite a thing, really, when you stood there thinking, my granddad was here, and he was probably 16. Mm. What an awful thing to have to, you know, get off a yeah. train and onto a boat. And he, um, His job was to take messages through the lines. So he said there was... He was on a push bike, and then he said... See, like shells going over both ways over the top of him and there'd be explosions on either side mm. anyway mm. trains mm. and <laughs> boats yes exactly <laughs> exactly and what about your journey through as an artist um, people love your work in Holland they're particularly keen on your work aren't they as well I believe uh, I mean not just this Holland but the, the Dutch quite like your are drawn to your works is that right they're drawn to my works yeah uh, mostly because um a Dutch publisher called Jaco Groot. He came to London and he was at a, in a really rather boring publisher's meeting. And at the back of the the room, they have these copies of this magazine called The London Magazine, a magazine of literature and, and poetry, and occasionally a Glenn Baxter. And he saw my work in there and he thought, oh, this is, this is interesting. So he, he went to, um, there's a gallery in Covent Garden called Hester Van Royen, which is now a sort of fashion fashion shop. But because it was a Dutch name, he went in to see the um, the gallery owner. And she said to him, oh, are you interested in any English artists? And he said, yes, I'm interested in Glenn Baxter. And she said, well, funnily enough, he's got an exhibition next door uh, starting in a month's time at the Anthony Stokes Gallery. So he came over for that and I met him and he said to me, who's your English publisher? I said, well, I haven't got one. So I said, well, would you like to come to, to Holland and be, and be published? So I immediately agreed. So I went off to Holland with a suitcase full of drawings. It became my, my first book, Atlas. And uh, he went round uh, telling everybody he discovered this great genius, Glenn Baxter, and he's going to publish his book. And then he printed, I think, 2,000 copies of this book and um, sent them all out across Holland. And um, the bookshop took six oh. in the whole of Holland. <laughs> and uh, so... He said, well, it, it's a start, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're still friends, uh, despite all that, many, many years later. And I still, I've got a book coming out with him, actually, in, um, in October. So, uh, in, in the Netherlands? In the Netherlands only, yeah. yeah. Yes, no, that's good. But, and, and when you first went to the Netherlands, how did, you, how did it first strike you when you first went there? Well, the first time we got off the plane in, in Holland, you know, the flat countries, the first sign you see is a sign saying, mind the step. I thought that was an interesting observation, mm. you know, for, you know <laughs> for people arriving there. And um, just amazing that everyone spoke English there. You know, I tried to speak a bit of, bit of gibberish, but Nipple just um, 
weren't having it. So people were very welcoming too. You know, they, they realised what a pathetic lives we English were were leading. They took pity on us, you know, and gave us a Heineken and a, and a herring and said, right now, enjoy yourself. And of course, the Dutch have a huge history of being painted. I don't know. I never quite understood why that was, but they're just huge in the 17th century. More people had art than at any time sort of in the history of ever. It's because of the herring diet, Jules. Was it? That's what it is. Yeah. Frequently eyes. Yeah. There's a funny thing about Scheveningen, which is by the sea. And you go to The Hague, which is the capital, and there's an incredible beach there. We took our little son, Harry, there years ago, and then we brought him back to The Hague. And there's a museum there called the Panorama Mesdag, which you go inside, and it's a, a domed interior. And he's painted a 360-degree mural of Scheveningen. And they've, they've very cunningly built sand up to the to the edge of the uh, the central platform. So it's a bit like being on a bandstand, isn't it? Actually? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And it gives an incredible sort of trompe you know, v yeah. vision of it. And our son Harry was about six at the time, and he, he said, Dad, he said, but we've just been here, but the first one was outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant observation. Yeah, right. And it is a great... I went there recently, actually, to that uh, place in... Um, Den, Den Haag, as we call it. Uh, yeah, very interesting, Holland. Di close, but absolutely different. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Do you get up and work in the morning? Yeah, I like to work in the morning till uh, lunchtime. Then yeah. I, I used to go for a swim, which I still do now. We, we can go back have a swim, come back, lunch, siesta, being a, a fully-fledged European, and then work again until about 7 o'clock, then a drink, dinner, and then collapse, basically. Yeah, I like working in the morning. Mm. I, got, I was working at half five this morning, and that's the best time for me, early in the morning. And I used to go for a swim. I, I should start doing that again. I'd work, go for a swim, come back and do some more work, lunch, and then go for a walk. Nice life, isn't it? Nice life. Because, of course, George Simonon, <clears throat> the writer of May Gray, his writing routine was similar to both of you as visual artists, although he was writing. But he would get up very early and start writing, and he'd stop for coffee at 11. And then he would carry on writing. Then he'd have a light lunch... Then he would have to, uh, according, this is all according to my mother, who, who never met him, he would have to find somebody for the purposes of sex. <laughs> <laughs> and, it would, but, and it was often a different person every day. But people were obviously agreeable to it, you know. And then uh, he'd have a little rest and then sort of carry on writing for the rest of the afternoon. 
Where, where was this? Let me picture it. Where was it? Well, I'm not quite sure. I mean, he, I think he came from Liège originally, but probably, and then he was in Paris, you know, so I yeah. suppose it's a bit more convenient in Paris for that sort of thing. But yeah. Um, but what did he do when he went on the holiday to Bridlington? Um, <laughs> good question. I think that was a great inspiration when Maygrave goes to Bridlington. <laughs> Whilst we're talking about Liège, yes. can I just add a little story about Liège? Yes. Okay. I had a, an exhibition there run by this crazy Arabic guy called Antaki. And it was a tiny little gallery. And um, he invited us over there. And uh, there were lots of drinking beers and stuff at the Venissage. And we stayed late. And about, I guess about one o'clock in the morning, he was driving us back to his house through the entire deserted streets of Liège. And the only place that was open at, at one o'clock in the morning was the funeral parlour. No. Lights were full on, and they had three caskets in the window. And I thought, well, people say that Belgium is the birthplace of surrealism. This is living evidence of that exactly the same thing, you know. Wow. that is, And you could see where Magritte, who I think came from Liège, actually, didn't he? Magritte came from uh, somewhere near there, yeah. And it just proves that Magritte is a social realist. Yes, you don't have to make things up because in Belgium they already exist. We did a show when, when our last European tour was on just outside of Liège. We drove on the motorway just outside of Liège and the thing I wrote, we, 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 we came past, which what we were talking about earlier, a huge petrochemical, or I say petrochemical, I think it was a huge chemical works by the side of the motorway. And it went on and on. Like it was so, there was so much of it. it just went, It was like enormous, this plant of of like you know pipes coming up and it was quite surreal and it's in it because it was so much of it and it was vast pipes and chimneys and and sort of ducts and things that you couldn't work out what they did and big buildings with sort of vents coming out of them it just went on and on and on and on and then we got to the bit of the end and it had a sign to what the place was called and it must have it was a place of a city and it had such a great name because it was spelt with a ch it was called chemolot Really? What was that? It's well, real name. Camelot. Yes, it exactly. Camelot. Well, it just was. Yeah, Camelot, and there was a lot of it, and it was Camelot. I love those places. What's it? It's Merthyr Tydfil. Is that one? That's uh, got a lot of Swansea, like, isn't it? Yeah, is that's just like a huge Steelworks, amount of yeah. That and Peter Lee, which mm. I love because you drive, you go through Peter Lee, and it's just one great big. ICI works and they've got pipes that go over the top of the mm. road, so you're oh, like driving through a, a tunnel of pipes. Yes. Lovely. Enchanting, yes. isn't it? No, I do. I, it's a sort of thing I go and ch- sketch for my holidays, yeah. I think it's because I am I'm equally attracted to magnificent natural beauty as I am to uh, filthy... Industrial decay. Industri- yeah. <laughs> I remember going through the desert from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and, uh, and the driver was trying to avert my eyes from a big, huge petrochemical plant like I shouldn't see it. He's going, look over here, look at the beautiful desert. And I was going, but I like that over there. <laughs> he was going, no, don't look at that, look over here. I actually think that's brought something into my mind. Shit, that's why it's gone again. So it was there for a second. It was, it, it was a it, brief it, second. It, it, was, it really was a brief second. Now, when you said something, there was, uh, you were talking about the. And now, a message from our sponsors. Jules, these new piano playing gloves are truly miraculous. Yes, sir. 
That's because they have 17 fingers on each hand. Thank you. Now I can play like Mrs Mills, Richard Clayderman and Bobby Crush combined. The 17-fingered piano glove by Pig Free and Biscuits. <laughs> Very good. What was your first car? We had a black Morris Minor. Yeah, you can't but, go wrong with that. No. With was that the, yours or the, your parents? No, it was my wife's car, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But did you go, drive all across Europe in this Morris Minor? No, we no. didn't. Uh, that, uh, we drove across Europe in a, in a Peugeot, then latterly a Volkswagen. How far did you end a Morris Minor? We got went camping in France once oh. with my wife's three three kids. Um, we stayed in a place called La Falaise, which I discovered later meant the Windy Bluff. And there's an incredible rainstorm th- that night, and um, it, it just poured and poured and poured. And the wife and th- and three kids slept in the Morris Thousand, and the next morning they came in to find me uh, alone in this tent in a sleeping bag on a, a pump-up um, mattress, the Lilo thing. And there's a radio on a, on, a, on a floating cushion next to my head, and it was playing um, Victor Sylvester. Oh, how lovely. And when we came back home to England, I remember walking around our apartment and sort of kissing the concrete walls, saying, I appreciate you now. I appreciate well, how, you. Exactly. Simple, simple thing like that being stuck in the rain can make you appreciate what a, a four walls and a, and, a, and a roof can be. Exactly, yeah. What about getting a big hotel room and putting a tent in it? A hotel room? Yeah, and then put a a great big hotel room, big enough to put a tent in, and then putting a tent in it if you wanted to. I tell you what, Björk, the singer, she told me, I said, I did ask her what she took to her, she took anything on tour, and she said she always took a, a primer stove, and in her room they would have a little sort of cook up around the primer stove in the hotel room. That's a nice idea, isn't it? Mm. What about the hotel sprinkling system? Doesn't that come into play when... Well, I think maybe they quite like that because it made it all the more like you were sort of outdoors. <laughs> it's raining. Yes, it's raining. And I'm cooking. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm home. Yeah, exactly. It was great. They loved that best. It, have you ever driven through Iceland? Not recently, no. Have you? I did once, actually, yeah. So no, that's an experience. Yeah. I got in, a, I hired a car and I got some dried fish and left them in overnight. That's a big mistake. Because you get in the next day and there's an overpowering stench of old fish and drove through incredible snowstorms and then I got stuck in a um, a snowdrift and the Icelandic people are really nice but they've got a strange way about them. They saw that we'd got stuck in this snowdrift and they stopped to help us but all they did was just look at us waiting for us to say, can you help? It was polite of them. But the, the, I, the, I have a, you're right, very helpful. I had this experience. I was driving across Iceland on a little trip and I was with Jennifer Saunders and Aid Edmondson. They'd all organised it. And we rented a car and then you, and, and on the cassette on the car or CD, it tells you where to go and then it stops and you press the next bit. And you walk, you go through a lot, what I would describe as a sort of a Tolkien type of landscape of incredible... So the odd, very distance in a monastery on a hill, or the, and then for miles of nothing. Anyway, we were driving along this road, and we'd been driving for like an hour, not seeing anything at all. And there's a long, straight bit of road, and the distance is a speck. And as we get closer, we see that it's a broken down vehicle, and it's a man 
standing next to a Volkswagen camper van that had a puncture. That was me. <laughs> was it? <laughs> you were the people who were staring at me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> where it was. But we got along, and this man was, was like, he had a puncture. Was many, so we got along, we slowed down, and he looked up, and he had, because it was freezing cold, if you got out of the vehicle for a moment, we'd gone to see the Northern Lights, so it was very cold at that time of year. Got out of the vehicle for a moment, your teeth hurt if you smiled. That's how cold yeah. it was. So anyway, he was outside fixing, trying to fix his wheel, and he had a fur-lined sort of hood, and he looked up, and his face was, he must have been, I'm guessing maybe 65 or 70. He had a very white red face and a white beard and no moustache. Do you know that sort of look? Yeah. And bulging blue eyes and white eye. And we said to him, excuse me, do you, do you need any help at all here? Can we help you? And he just looked at us as if we'd stopped and asked him to clean our car. And he went, no! I said, oh, all right then. And off we went. <laughs> I'm only trying to help you, mate. Don't get out your pram. But that was, yeah. Well, it's the Icelandic way, obviously. It's the Icelandic way. But... Should have offered him a moustache to go with his, his beard. Exactly. That would if have you been the way forward then... in Icelandic etiquette. I think it? you're right. In fact, if, we don't want us to, if you don't want us to help with your puncture, what about a moustache? <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen the Northern Lights? No, I haven't. Mm, that's a thing. I thought that was in uh, Iceland as well. And I was looking for them every night and went to speak to someone in the hotel and said, we've been hoping to say the Northern Lights and they said oh 11.15 we've been going to bed early because it gets dark at 3 o'clock and so at 11.15 stayed up and looked out the window and there they were at 11.15 like it was a Pink Floyd light show that they'd just turned on yeah, maybe they had <laughs> maybe that was <laughs> you, can, you can see the wires yeah exactly. bit of a giveaway yeah. no they are I did see them once I'd say that was an incredible thing I've never seen anything like it you couldn't even describe them and you couldn't photograph them no, and you don't want to. It's no. just one of those things you've got to look at, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today, uh, Glenn Baxter. I'm a great admirer and, uh, of your artwork and your personage, and it's marvellous to hear some of your transportation stories that we've enjoyed very much today. Glenn Baxter, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there goes Glenn, travelling home in his black Morris Minor. With the indicator stuck out, the semaphore indicator stuck out. With his winker sticking out of the window. (laughs) Marvellous. Bye, Glenn. This podcast was produced and edited by Molly Stewart. Sound engineers with James Stewart and George Latham. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.